You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com. Happy beginning of Holy Week. If this is the first time you have journeyed through Holy Week with us, um, you're not going to want to miss a second of it. The whole journey is transformed. It is so powerful. It changes my life every single time I get to participate with it. But at this Holy Week is coming at the end of a season of Lent. If you remember, I don't know how you could forget, we've been looking throughout these weeks of Lent asking the question, where is the good life? Where do we find the good life? Now, whether you admit it or not, you're actually asking that question in almost all the decisions you make every single day. The good life is a cup of coffee in the morning. Just don't talk to me until I have my coffee, right? I have that. I get it. There's these things that we decide along the way in our everyday lives that determine for us and shape for us and inform what it is we think the good life is. But in Lent, as we've set aside some of these things, like a nice cocktail, which I've set aside this Lent and is... It has been like not an easy thing, but whatever. Every time I think, oh, that would be so wonderful to have. Or if I tempt my neighbors with sweets who they're giving this up for Lent, it's awful. I shouldn't tempt them that way. But, you know, I'm eating candy in front of them or something. It's awful. Every time we come across these things that we're fasting from, we set them aside and we say, Jesus, we know that the good life isn't found in a cocktail or in a cup of coffee or in these sweets. But I know that my whole body groans for you, God. It's actually how it was engineered in the beginning. In the first place, our lives groan and long and hunger for the good life. And we're finding in Lent that that life is only and ever found in Jesus, God's son. But it can be so tempting for us to say we want all of that good life. We want Jesus to come and reign in our life and bring all that he brings. It's so easy for us to be tempted to say all that and at the same time resist his reign and rule as an actual king in our lives who gets to tell us what to do. Well, then it gets like uncomfortable. I'm not sure I signed up for that. It's tempting to have a puppet king in Jesus who can report to us, consult us. What would you like to happen in your life today, Sean? Well, Jesus, this, it would be so nice to have a puppet king for us, we think. But this isn't the king who comes. The king we invite isn't so often the king we, ex- we actually <laughs> receive, the one who comes to reign over our lives. This is a king who doesn't negotiate with us. He, he's not elected we don't get to complain about his reign and rule because it's actually perfect. Even when we can't see what God's doing, he's always working everything in our lives for our good under his reign and rule according to his plan, according to his sight, something that we can't even often see. Jesus is that kind of king and he doesn't report to us. And y'all, that's great news that this king does not consult you about what to do next. In fact... We don't really know the king we really desperately need, I think. We think we may have a glimpse, may have an idea, but we don't actually know the king that we need, the king that Jesus is. Our question this morning that I want us to think about is this. What kind of king is he? Really, let's let's just put everything aside for a minute, everything we've preconceived about Jesus and what we like or don't like about him, and let's just like clear the slate and ask, okay, This king is coming. What kind of king is he? 
And then once we get a glimpse of that, and only once we get a glimpse of who this king actually is, can we truthfully decide whether or not we'd like to receive him as king. Does that make sense? So many of us have received a king that actually doesn't exist, a cruel king, a king who, who is like oppressive and mad at us and angry at us. That king doesn't exist. That is a lie. But the king who actually comes is much different. And we get to decide today, will we receive this king? We're considering the account of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem this morning. The king returns to his holy city, the city on the hill, to take his seat on the throne that is rightfully his and to establish his kingdom. We read all this in Luke chapter 19, which we just read outside in, uh, begin, well, before we began processing our palms. And in chapter 19, it says that Jesus is heading into Jerusalem. In verse 29, it tells us he had come near Bethphage and Bethany. Okay. You ever wonder why scripture tells us details like that? Like we're supposed to know where that is? Interesting. At the place of the Mount, called the Mount of Olives. Okay. Well, let's get to the, the real deal here. Let's talk about Jesus, right? We want to read over these clues and just get on to like the meat of the scriptures, right? But these are actually super significant. And these details and these names of cities and these locations and the orientation of the story is so significant. And if we just read over them, we actually totally forfeit being able to interpret the meaning of this story. We glance over the clues. The clues are always significant. And in this case, it reveals something amazing, actually. It reveals that the Lord is coming from the east to the east of the temple, if you were to look at it on a map, you got the temple over here and you got these cities, Bethany and Bethphage over here. And then you have this Mount of Olives over here, but it's all to the east of the holy city and the temple. And this is the direction that Jesus is coming from. Should sound familiar as we face east at the altar, celebrating Holy Eucharist, anticipating the one who's to come. Do y'all see that? East is an important detail in scripture. And any pious Jew, anyone who had been near a synagogue during this time in the first century would remember Ezekiel's prophecy when the glory of the Lord left the temple long before the people were defiling God's temple. They were sinning, they were doing awful things and they were making a mess of, thing in their, uh, mess of the temple and their sin. They were committing evil and injustice to the poor. And so the Lord left the temple and it was devastating. Can you imagine being near the hill, looking to the temple and realizing the Lord's presence is no longer there? We had known it all along there and he has left. The glory of the Lord has left my life. Where will I find him? Can you imagine a, a, a city, a people whose identity is completely wrapped up in the presence of the Lord in the temple and now it's gone? How devastating. Let me read to you in Ezekiel 8 verse 6. He said to me, mortal, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here in the temple to drive me far from my sanctuary. Yet you will see greater abominations. In other words, it gets worse. You think this is bad. The things that people are doing, it gets worse. And then in chapter 10, verse 18, just scooting forward a little bit, he says, then the glory of the Lord left the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stopped above the cherubim. The cherubim lifted up their wings and rose up from the earth in my sight as they went out with the wheels beside them. They stopped at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. 
What a nightmare. The glory of the Lord leaving. The people had chosen not the glory of the Lord, but their own way, their own life. And it was not a good life. And if you think, how stupid. Would anyone choose a different way than the glory of the Lord? Friends, this is our story. I'm reading my own narrative off the pages of scripture here. I choose a life of sin apart from the glory of God. Maybe not out front, maybe not knowingly, sometimes knowingly, but sometimes just because that's the, what, the decisions I'm making. And in, in this story, God, because of that decision, leaves these people to themselves, to, to the decisions of sin that they have committed, taking his presence far from the temple. But if you think it's, it's awful, it's hopeless, it is awful, but it's not hopeless. The prophet foretells what God will do. In Ezekiel 43, it says this, then he brought me to the gate, the gate facing east, that same gate. And there the glory of God, of the God of Israel was coming from the east, coming over that mountain of olives, that Mount of Olives, you could see it. The glory of the Lord filled the temple once again. There will be a day, the prophet is saying, when the glory of the Lord will return. And guess what direction it's gonna come from? Guess where you can look? It's in the east. One of these days, we're gonna build a beautiful church and we're gonna have a graveyard on that church, I hope. Because, in, I mean, that sounds creepy. And what does this have to do with this? But one of the great traditions about a graveyard around a church is that you can, you can bury folks in the graveyard of the church, our whole family, our whole church family, and, and they'll face their graves facing east. So when the resurrection comes, when the Lord returns, they come out of the grave ready to go. They don't have to turn around at all, but there he is in the east. I love that image. East was everything. This was the direction that the Shekinah glory of God, the, the blinding, bone-warming glory of God would come and return to his people. So Israel was likely expecting something spectacular, right? If, if we asked you all to like go paint this or journal this or, or write poet, you would, you, would, you would show something kind of like Revelation 19, this like beautiful, stunning, powerful image of a king returning to Jerusalem to take his seat, make some popcorn, y'all. Let's sit on the edge of our seats. I can't wait to see what's gonna happen, right? This king coming back from battle, riding maybe on a war horse, Wielding weapons with shock and awe, with an entourage of warriors, an entire army, right? The glory of the Lord making his way into the holy city. That's how most of us would picture it. And even the Jews at the time were expecting this very image. So the people we find, just like we were, they hail this king, waving palm branches and laying down garments. They've got the celebration right, but this king, I'm not sure they've got... This guy, right, I don't think they know what to expect. This isn't the kind of king they were expecting. Now just picture this. I mean, we can because we just did this. This humble king, not on a war horse, but on a donkey. Just as Zechariah 9 said he would. With an entourage, not of warriors, but of the pathetically poor. The ragtag. The losers, the outcasts, those people that society had ground up and just cast aside. Probably that woman who was cured of all those years of bleeding. Maybe that man who had 
gained sight when Jesus healed him, spitting into the mud. You remember that? Maybe Lazarus. Maybe the lepers. Can you imagine? Can you just picture this dusty group of fishermen, blue-collar workers, nobodies in Jewish society, especially near the temple. These weren't the guys wearing the fancy robes. These were everybody else, the outsiders. Following Jesus in this super strange triumphal entry, their king on a donkey, and this parade of outcasts. Jesus had been with them all along. No wonder they kept following him. He had been with them all along in all of their pain, in all of their suffering. In all of that, he had been announcing his kingdom would be established. If you read anything in the gospels about the life of Jesus, you won't get very far without him, you hearing him say, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent. I'm establishing my kingdom, my kingdom is coming. Jesus was with them announcing this very news. And just like in Luke 4, when Jesus picked up the scroll of Isaiah 61 and said, this is what it looks like when that kingdom is established, relieving the oppressed, healing the sight to the blind, freeing the captives, gathering up those in society that had been unacceptable, the fed the hungry, gave hope to those who needed hope in despair. He was the one who was demonstrating the love of God, this radical love of God with these people all along. And so they kept following him, I'm sure. They were with him in this procession, this parade. And now these weak losers, as society maybe had cast them, they were joining in history's greatest victory lap. Little did they know. Parading in with their hopes in this man, this rabbi, Jesus. And even still, some scoffed at the celebration. The Pharisees, we read in verse 39, said this. The Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, who's riding on the donkey, do you see what these people are hailing? The Pharisees get it. You see how they're receiving you? They're receiving you as the Lord. The Shekinah glory of the Lord coming back. And do you see this? You've got to stop these disciples. You've got to stop them. And Jesus responds, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. Even if people were silent about the glory of the Lord returning, even creation who's been groaning all along would shout out in our silence. They realized that these people had put what seemed to be to them an irrational hope in this man, this Jesus, making him to be God and King and Lord, making him to be the glory of the Lord in the flesh returning to the temple. And by the way, that's exactly who he is. But he didn't come to dominate with violence or with force in the way they expected, toppling over the Roman Empire, perhaps. But, in, but he comes in a different way. In Luke chapter 152, it tells us how this king comes, how he comes to operate. Listen to this. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. Is that the king we expect? king that comes to bring shalom and salvation, to topple the true powers of evil. And he had come prepared to do the work that was actually required to accomplish this, 
to reconcile all to the life of God. That rescue, it wouldn't be accomplished the way normal kings accomplish a rescue by doing violence to others or overthrowing a government. But instead, Jesus was this kind of king, listen to this, who overcame these powers, who overpowered even the greatest empire of history by becoming the object of our violence. By becoming the one who received all of the sin, all of the violence, all of the evil that the world had to give. By becoming sin, scripture tells us. Even the sin that you and I deny that we have, Jesus still took on and became that sin. By taking upon himself the great suffering of the world. If you're here this morning and you have great suffering, even before you've experienced that suffering, Jesus has taken that suffering with you. And all of this, why? So that we would be impressed and that like we would retweet, we treat his, we retweet his stuff or just be like fans of his and go, isn't this person great? Even before we decided that we think he's great, Jesus had already decided to do this out of love for you. Whether he approved it of or not, Jesus has come and comes into the city to make all things right. And he doesn't need to impress a bunch of people who think they're already healthy and they don't need a king. He doesn't need to impress us. He comes to cure sinners. He comes to, like that parade of people behind him, to gather up the outcasts and the wounded, those who are hungry. Even those who don't know that they're hungry or sinners or outcasts, he comes to collect you as well. His throne was no golden seat, but a cross. His crown was no jewel, but thorns. And his instrument of power, the way he does power, was no sword, was no violence, but was suffering. This is not the kind of king that we know that we need, right? This is something totally different. But here he comes. This is our king. The glory of the Lord returning to the temple. Coming humbly to accomplish our rescue out of love. Do we recognize him? If we spotted this king, could, could we recognize him? Can you imagine yourself in the procession we kind of just did? Where are you in the story of the procession? Are you behind him? Are you part of that ragtag group that just desperately wants to find out what he's going to do next because he's cured you and fed you? Are you ahead of him, laying down your garments, taking the shirts off your own back to hail this king that's coming into the holy city? Are you maybe a distance off, skeptically watching with your arms crossed, maybe in judgment or maybe just in suspicion like the Pharisees? Maybe you're just indifferent. You're not sure where you are in this story. Here's the thing. Wherever you are in this story, no matter what part you think you most identify with, Jesus comes anyways. <laughs> he actually doesn't wait for us to kind of line up and get everything right. He doesn't wait for us to go, oh man, I'm like way better shape now. I'm not such a horrible sinner anymore. Before he No, he comes before you can even acknowledge that. He doesn't come because you've gone through all of your intellectual arguments and objections about how rationally this is supposed to work. He still comes, ready or not. He comes. Whether you believe that he's coming or not, thank God he still comes. 
He comes. If you've made a mess of your life, he's coming. If you're in doubt or you're hurting or weighed down with sin, he's coming to you. Whether you recognize him, whether you're not ready for him, whether the house is clean or not, Jesus is coming. He comes to bring salvation. He comes to heal. He comes to set the world right. Jesus comes to fix injustice that we long for. Thank God. He comes to cure our sin that plagues us. He comes to break the bonds of fear that keep us captive. He comes to grant us peace that we long for. He comes to dismantle systems of violence and of racism and of injustice in every form and all of its friends. He comes to overthrow all of that, not on our terms, not on our timing, but he comes to do it according to the plan of God. And he consults no one about it. It will inconvenience so many empires, so many kingdoms, so many people across the planet. The way that he comes and imposes his reign and his rule. He comes. This is such good news that Jesus doesn't coordinate with the UN or something. He doesn't need to coordinate with your work schedule or your boss. He doesn't need to like just make sure that this is a good time for everyone. He just comes determined to set the world right. But he doesn't do it with shock and awe. He does it very quietly and humbly enduring the suffering of the cross that he heads to. This is the king that comes. Where does he come, really, though? That seems like interesting theology. But where does he come, really? Church, your king comes wherever Holy Eucharist is celebrated, at every table and in every space in which God's people kneel in repentance and welcome him. Your king comes into your life this morning. And even tomorrow and Tuesday, He's still leading us in procession. And Wednesday, he leads us. And in Thursday and Friday, the whole week, our whole lives, because of our repentance and coming to receive him in all Eucharist, we receive this, come, this king who comes to lead us in our actual everyday lives. So I want to invite you. You can actually clear your calendar this week, especially for Thursday when we celebrate the meal, the last meal that the Lord had with his disciples for his crucifixion. On Friday, when we celebrate his cross and his passion, on Holy Saturday, we have a, a whole set of hours open for you to come and pray in this vigil space, to walk a prayer labyrinth and to be quiet, keeping the watch with the church across the globe, awaiting the resurrection. And then on Sunday, for Easter Sunday, you can actually clear out your calendar and decide to come and attend to all those things. I'll even write you a note. If you need to skip school or work, come to me, I'll write you a note. It's fine. There's nothing actually more important than joining Jesus in this triumphal parade as our king. And by the way, we have childcare for all of those services at 630. So let us finish Lent then, folks, following Jesus, welcoming this king that comes. Let us finish Lent not lazy and tired and preoccupied and just too busy in our calendar, but we can actually repent of all that stuff and say, I'm going to do my best to just clear this out. I might even get a note from Sean. And I want to come eager to receive this king Jesus, not on my terms, not on my timing, not in the way that I would like for him to come, but in the way that he actually comes through his death and resurrection. We would have thought that the good life is found 
somewhere, some, somehow else other than following a humble king on a donkey with a whole bunch of beggars to death at a cross. We would have thought the good life would have been maybe somewhere else. But friends, this is where it is. And Jesus invites you now, his disciples, come, receive your king, and let's follow him to the cross. Church, let's be ready this holy week as we follow him. And even ready right now at the table as we come to receive him. Amen. You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.